Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. This episode, we're telling the story of one of the most tumultuous events in contemporary American political history, the 1968 presidential election. Clawing his way back into the lives of the American public after two major losses and half a decade in the wilderness, the story of this president's victory is a complex one, with some serious underdog energy. Long before his name would become synonymous with the Watergate Hotel, Richard Nixon succeeded in winning over a highly divided nation. In a few weeks' time, we'll tell the Watergate story and see a very different side of Tricky Dick. But for now, sit back, relax, and get ready to head with us to the ballot box. It's Nixon Agnew, 68. Taking us back to the beginning of Nixon's story is our guest, Dr. Luke Nichter, Professor of History at Chapman University, California. His area of specialty is the Cold War, the modern presidency, and U.S. political and diplomatic history from John F. Kennedy through Watergate. Dr. Nichter's latest book, The Year That Broke Politics, has just been released and is all about the 1968 presidential election. To begin the story, he tells us about Richard Nixon's youth and life pre-politics. Oh, I, I think, uh, you, know, you know, so in, from, from that, from that upbringing then, uh, in terms of a transition to political life, uh, the 1946 congressional election was really a sea change in, in the United States. It was the first time that we had returning veterans on the ballot that veterans issues, you know, were became public policy. And and 46 to 48, you have a whole host of, of newly returned veterans who are all running for Congress, uh, not just Richard Nixon, uh, but John F. Kennedy, uh, Gerald Ford. I mean, many kind of later household names, uh, more than one that would go all the way to the presidency, uh, started their political career under similar circumstances in, in the, the late 1940s. And so uh, I think local organizers in Southern California were looking for kind of photogenic young veterans uh, who aspired to be something politically. Uh, Nixon kind of fit the bill there uh, and, and had a little bit of Washington ex experience already with the Navy working uh, kind of as a minor New Deal official in the administration of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the Office of Price Administration. And so I think the idea was obviously appealing to him because he'd only practiced law just for few years, and then that was interrupted by the war. Uh, and so to leave that and go to politics, you know, must have been something that, that really uh, stuck with him and, and clicked with his interests. California's 12th Congressional District is a Democratic stronghold. Jerry Voorhis has had it locked down for a decade and is getting very comfortable in his seat in the House of Representatives. Over his many terms, the Republicans have struggled to put up a strong challenger against him, largely because of infighting. Now, in 1945, preempting the 1947 election, they decide they've had enough. They form the Committee of a Hundred, a group with one clear mission statement, 
finding the candidate who can take Jerry Voorhis down. No one could have predicted the answer would lie with a Navy man currently based in Baltimore. Herman Perry, a member of the Committee of a Hundred, is family friends with Richard Nixon. He writes to Nixon in Maryland, suggesting he come to California. With his wife's support, Nixon makes the trip and is quickly selected by the committee. A year later, after leaving the Navy, he begins campaigning in earnest. Unknown to many, Nixon is actually a fantastic poker player, and he funds his initial congressional campaign largely with earnings from his poker playing throughout the war. The 1947 election will also see Joseph McCarthy elected to the Senate. There's clearly something in the air, as Nixon is already practicing McCarthyism. He draws the public's attention to a communist-adjacent group that endorses Jerry Voorhis, and alleges that, by association, Voorhis must also be a communist. 65,586 votes later, Richard Nixon makes his way into government. His career moves quickly from here. We are a few decades early, but you could call Nixon an early yuppie. He's still in his 30s and very, very upwardly mobile. In 1950, he leaves the House of Representatives behind and runs for the Senate. Again, he takes down his opponent, this time Representative Helen Gahagan Douglas, with allegations of communist sympathies. The claims about her are even more tangential, with Nixon comparing her voting history to that of another congressman who is allegedly a communist. Nixon wins by a wide margin, with almost a 20% lead. Richard Nixon, now known to many as Tricky Dick, has arrived at the Senate. For many, this is the political summit. Not for Nixon. For him, it's merely base camp. The only way to go from here, it seems, is up. Our guest, Professor Nichter, describes what happens next. And then, uh, really, the, the, the dream scenario uh, arrived in 1952 when he was asked to become the vice presidential running mate uh, with the hero of D-Day, uh, General Dwight Eisenhower. And so Nixon, still 39 years of age, uh, joined the Eisenhower ticket. Eisenhower was not a politician, and despite his other strengths, was, was clearly his weaknesses would be as, as a, a politician, as a political leader, understanding politics and policy. I don't even think he had firm uh, convictions about many public policy issues in the early 1950s. So a lot of that legwork and even sort of political dirty work would, would ultimately be done by, by Vice President Nixon in 1952 and then running for re-election in 56. Eisenhower was a unique figure in politics. Uh, he was a figure who 
Um, it, it wasn't even clear when he was running whether he was a Republican or Democrat. You know, the media had this kind of parlor game. They would look at his old speeches and try to determine, well, sometimes he sounded a little more liberal, sometimes a little more conservative. And it was this game, but, you know, don't even know what he is. And, and this is a, a time period when uh, even more so than now, when many prominent military officials uh, really resisted doing anything political. Many of them didn't even vote regularly because they didn't want to have to choose a political party over another. They really went out of their way to avoid any association with politics. And so it was a guessing game right up until uh, early 1952, you know, what he was. And his campaign manager, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., who was the subject of uh, my last book, A Biography of Lodge, this kind of prominent uh, Eastern establishment, uh, sort of liberal Republican him went before the press on the deadline to go on the New Hampshire primary, uh, something we're again, you know, approaching here with the coming election. And he told the media uh, that Dwight Eisenhower is a Republican and he will be on the Republican ballot in New Hampshire. And the media said, how do you know this? Uh, and Eisenhower being um, uh, still in uniform in Paris, kind of helping to start uh, what would become NATO then and, and, and managing the sort of American like, occupation forces that still in Western Europe, uh, Lodge said to the press, ask him and see. And if he confirms it, you'll have a good story. And if he denies it, you'll have a good story. And so that was kind of the beginning of the Eisenhower presidency and, and, and Nixon's association with Eisenhower. But really, Nixon would have to do a lot of the kind of spade work politically, uh, appearing with candidates campaigning. You know, Eisenhower, who was much older, was not going to be a vigorous campaigner, wasn't going to travel internationally. So a lot of that uh, felt to Nixon, so he gained an exceptional amount of experience, still at 39 years of age when he became vice president, uh, but also he had to do a lot of political chores, and so he, he accumulated some political enemies along the way too. Ironically, Vice President Nixon's international duties will see him visiting the Soviet Union. After years bullying his opponents into submission over anything remotely resembling communist tendencies, he becomes one of the first American leaders to visit the communist bloc. In 1959, he flies to Moscow to attend the opening of the American National Exhibition. An odd cultural event, the exhibition was essentially one half of a cultural trade, with a similar Soviet-organized installation taking place in New York City. Designed to exhibit art, technology and the merits of each country's respective economic system, these showings are designed to draw the attention of the world. Sitting at a model kitchen table in Moscow, Nixon gets into an argument with Soviet Premier Khrushchev. This famous conversation, later known as the Kitchen Debate, is aired on live television. Here's a snippet. As far as Mr. Khrushchev's uh, comments just now, uh, they are in the tradition we learn to expect from him of uh, speaking extemporaneously and frankly uh, whenever he has an opportunity. I can only say that if this competition which you have just described so effectively, in which uh, you plan to outstrip us and particularly in the production of consumer goods, uh, if this competition is to do the best for both of our peoples and for people everywhere, there must be a free exchange of ideas. Uh, 
There are some instances where you may be ahead of us. For example, in the development of your of the thrust of your rockets for the investigation of outer space. There may be some instances, for example, color television, where we're ahead of you. But in order for both of us, for both of us to benefit, for both of us to benefit, you see, you never concede anything. Of course, all is not easy as Eisenhower's vice president. Being a political anomaly, Eisenhower hasn't exactly left a clear line of succession for Nixon to follow. Alongside this, while Nixon has been busy performing errands around the world, support has been growing for a Democratic Party superstar. John F. Kennedy has entered the presidential race. Here's Professor Nichter describing Nixon's first presidential campaign and what followed soon after. So I'd say his training as vice president really helped Nixon to be in pole position to be to run for president himself in 1960. And it was I mean, this is one of the most uh, consequential elections, you know, sort of in modern U.S. history, one of the closely divided elections, but really kind of a battle of titans, you know, political titans. So on the Republican side, you had the two people uh, to whom Eisenhower probably owed the most to. Now, this was still Eisenhower's party. Uh, Nixon at the top of the ticket and his running mate, Henry Cabot Lodge, Jr. Uh, and, and really, if you were to name the two people that Eisenhower owed the most to after eight years in the White House, it was probably those two. And even some speculation about, you know, who would be at the top of the ticket and who would be the running mate. And on, on the other side, probably uh, the scion of a of the most successful political family in modern American history, John F. Kennedy, uh, also a senator, an unusual time where all four top figures were current or former U.S. senators. It doesn't happen that often. So Kennedy was a current senator. His running mate, Lyndon Johnson of Texas, was also a current current senator uh, and had been a Senate majority leader and working his way up. And to talk about it, really, this is this is uh, you know one thing, one takeaway you can have from this election. This is a battle of ambitions. Uh, these are people who who rose exceptionally quickly on both sides of the aisle. Lodge was a little older. Lodge was fifty eight at the time of the uh, of the of the election. The others were all much younger, almost kind of a half generation younger, and really the most ambitious. Uh, that you could be of their generation in each political party. It was one of the uh, cl uh, very close defeat for Nixon, uh, by, by certainly by uh, the uh, popular vote. The electoral college vote was a little more decisive for Kennedy. But I mean, it used to be we would say, oh, that was a really close election. And now we're in an era where it seems like almost every election is close or in cases where the victor doesn't even win the popular vote, might lose the popular vote, but win the electoral vote. Uh, but we used to say this was really one of the very closest elections at the time. And so it sent Nixon sort of into the wilderness for a period of years. Uh, he really didn't know what he wanted to do. Uh, he ultimately ran for the governor of California. And I, I don't, there's still speculation. I think reasonable people can debate, like how do you go from senator, vice president to candidate to running for governor, which is a really different uh, job. Now, John F. Kennedy famously said, you know, once you're in Washington for a few years, the last thing you want to do is be back in a governor's office dealing with sewer contracts in your home state. Um, once you work on national policy, you know, there's no going back you know, to sort of state level policy. I, I, Eisenhower, however, believed that politicians had to have executive experience. 
He liked people who had been from corporate America who'd run something, whether it's a large government uh, department, whether it's a, a corporation, or in this case, California by 1960 had just become the largest state in the United States by population. And so, you know, what better state to be governor of? Uh, it would also have been a way for, for Nixon to have established independent credentials from Eisenhower. You know, he'd not been on the ballot in his own name since 1950. 52, 56 were victories for Nixon, but, it all, all, but because he was tied to Eisenhower as his running mate. So for a number of reasons, it made sense. For others, it didn't make sense. Personally, I, I can't, to, to, you know, as John F. Kennedy said, I cannot imagine Nixon having been in Washington since 1947, going back to Sacramento in 1962. Uh, so he lost uh, by a more decisive uh, margin in 1962 against Pat Brown. Uh, and and would spend several years, you know, sort of in what we now call the wilderness. I, I, I there, you know, this is still an active field of scholarship, believe it or not. It's been sixty years later, but there's still not really a good book I could I could point you to, you know, about Nixon's race in '62. Uh, there's one scholar named Erwin Gelman who's now doing a the really the first book on Nixon's wilderness years. His last, he, he, he's kind of gradually writing the, the entire biography of Nixon, a book at a time. So he did the congressional years, the vice presidency. His last book was on the 60 campaign. And now he's doing the wilderness years up till 68. And I, I, I'm going to have to wait and see what he says. I mean, my own instincts, looking at it from the lodge side, you know, having an, another kind of um, grandee of the Republican Party, is that, you know, it, it was really the reasons that I mentioned. It was that, you know, Nixon needed to establish himself separate from Eisenhower. Uh, he needed to have some executive experience. You know, people not familiar with the American political system assume that the, the vice president is really sort of the number two person in charge in the political system. And while I guess that's true, I mean, their title's vice president, the jobs are completely unrelated. I mean, constitutionally, the vice president opens the Senate cast tie-breaking votes and but other than that is kind of at the mercy of the president for interesting assignments and only until more recently um, vice presidents typically haven't even had an office in the white house you know are often estranged from the president they serve um whether you look at johnson as johnson was to the kennedys as agnew was to nixon and you could go forward in time and backwards in time, oftentimes the vice president and the president barely even have a working relationship with each other. Uh, so I think um, I think for all those reasons, Nixon really needed to do something in his own name. Uh, I just happen to think that wasn't a very good choice of uh, running for governor. While Nixon is off in the wilderness, American politics is entering a period of extreme turbulence. With the assassination of John F. Kennedy in 1963, Lyndon B. Johnson has been elevated to president. He's come to the Oval Office with a sturdy hand and a strong political base. The Southern Democrats, or Dixiecrats, who've been causing JFK countless headaches, are far more inclined to work with the Texan Johnson. When it comes time for his re-election in 1964, Johnson absolutely sweeps, winning the largest popular vote majority in U.S. election history. Meanwhile, the Vietnam War is continuing at full blast, and Johnson is escalating the scale of U.S. involvement in it more and more every year. By 1967, the stats are more than disheartening. 
1,000 US soldiers are dying every month. Tensions with the Soviet Union have risen since Nixon was in Moscow talking about kitchens. President Johnson and his Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, tell the American public that they have the North Vietnamese on the back foot and that things look to be wrapping up. But soon after, the Vietnamese launch a major offensive, proving the opposite. This causes a major drop in Johnson's approval ratings, which, while still strong, certainly strong enough to win him the Democratic nomination, puts a large question mark on how viable a campaign for re-election will be. Then, on March the 31st, 1968, Johnson announces on public television that he will be withdrawing from consideration for re-election. Speaking very diplomatically, he states, quote, With America's sons in the fields far away, with America's future under challenge right here at home, with our hopes and the world's hopes for peace in the balance every day, I do not believe that I should devote an hour or a day of my time to any personal partisan causes or to any duties other than the awesome duties of this office, the presidency of your country. Accordingly, I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. End quote. With LBJ's absence, all projections for the election have gone out the window. It's now anyone's game. Here's our guest, Luke Nichter, to describe some of the key competitors, particularly the Democratic candidate, Vice President Hubert Humphrey, and to add never-before-heard context to Lyndon Johnson's withdrawal. Yeah, 1968 was just, I, I think, to me, I mean, one of the most, I mean, I just finished a book on it, so obviously I find it interesting. Um, but I think it just has all the classic elements of just a fascinating campaign in terms of you have um, perhaps the, the greatest politician uh, in, in modern American history, Lyndon Johnson, you know, the outgoing president, who announces dramatically on live television on March 31st that he would not run. Uh, then you have his vice president all of a sudden being thrust into a role, Hubert Humphrey, that he never expected. You have Nixon of this long, he clawed his, all, his way back from the wilderness for six years, uh, reading and studying and traveling around the world. And I think trying to uh, mature and be a better candidate, less emotional candidate than he was in 1960 and 62. You know, 62, his, his, his uh, political career came to a dramatic end at his press conference in, in Beverly Hills when he announced to the press, uh, you won't have Dick's Nick, Dick Nixon to kick around anymore. Uh, and it's been famously referred to as Nixon's last press conference and really the time that he, he just lost it, really slipped out of gear, I think. One of the strangest you know, press conferences in modern US uh, political history. And so you have, so 68, Johnson all of a sudden withdraws, Humphrey as vice president running in his place, you have Nixon, who's clawed all the way back, who had who who really, I would say, 
uh, no one exactly is thrilled about in the Republican side. Uh, you know, Republicans, you know, too often we say, oh, Republicans are conservatives and Democrats are liberals. But I mean, there's a continuum of political thought in each one of those parties. And believe it or not, even overlap ideologically between them. And in 1968, you know, on the liberal side, you know, so to Nixon's left, you had Governor Nelson Rockefeller, you know, of, of New York, very powerful, um, multimillionaire, famous uh, heir to a political family. Uh, to, to Nixon's right in the Republican Party, you know, California Governor Ronald Reagan, uh, the one in 1966 who had beat Pat Brown, who had beat Nixon in 1962. And so the many people wondered whether the political moment in 68 was actually Reagan's and not Nixon's, since Reagan had bested Brown in 66. And he was the, the Republican candidate that really made conservatives heart, heart swoon. Uh, he was a kind of, you know, Barry Goldwater in, in, from 1964, who was wiped out in a landslide against uh, Nick, against Lyndon Johnson in 64. But but Reagan, though, he had the good looks. He understood media. He had the Hollywood background. Uh, also an odd, you know, a, a politician in the sense of Eisenhower, not really much of a political background. So you had uh, Nixon had challengers on the left in the Republican Party. He had challenges on the right. And what Nixon did to his credit um, was really emphasized competence that in a time in a, in a time period of chaos, you know, the nation was tearing itself apart uh, uh, at home. Uh, there was the, the 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 longest war in American history in, in Vietnam going on. So there was chaos overseas. There was chaos at home, and it wasn't exciting for Nixon to emphasize calm, cool, collected, poise, and confidence. But I think many people that year were looking away to escape the chaos of the 1960s. And so Nixon uh, positioned himself in sort of the center lane of the party and really didn't allow anyone else to take, and which is really what you needed to capture the nomination. The 1968 election is unusual in that it's a three-horse race. Alongside Nixon and Humphrey, there's a relevant, prominent, independent candidate. George Wallace has tried for the Democratic Party ticket twice and been turned down each time. The governor of Alabama, George Wallace is almost a single-issue politician. In his own words, from a speech given in 1963, quote, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever, end quote. It's debatable how much Wallace genuinely cares about segregation and how much he's just playing to his demographic. But motivation aside, his MO remains clear. George is popular, very popular even, if you're in the southern states. But he's not under any delusion that he may actually win the presidency. His goals are smaller and more achievable. Rather, Wallace seeks to be kingmaker. He's hoping to split enough of the vote that neither major party candidate can win smoothly from the Electoral College, thus giving him and other pro-segregationist Southern leaders more bargaining power. He isn't successful in this strategy. While he ultimately wins five states and over 13% of the popular vote, he falls short of his goal. But how does the 1968 election as a whole play out? Professor Nichter runs through the events for us. 
Oh, the, the election, uh, I, I would almost refer to the 1968 election as not an election, but really almost a series of events that together we might call the election. I mean, so in the first phase, you know, Johnson was running uh, and probably could have gotten the nomination and would have been, I mean, that would have been the two biggest rivals of their of their generations politically, a Johnson versus a Nixon. I mean, regardless of one's personal political choices, I mean, that would have been an ultimate battle of the titans even more so than 60. And of course, Johnson withdrawing, that didn't happen. And so the way I document it in the book, I, I think it happened in several phases. Most books, and there's a lot of them on, on, 60, on 68 uh, and different elements of 68, assume that when Johnson withdrew from the race on March 31st on live television, that, that he was a political non-entity. Uh, I find that's not true at all. I think Johnson simply switched his focus from his own name on the ballot to influencing the choice of his successor, because his successor could do a great deal to sort of shape his own political legacy, his place in history, or potentially harm him, for example, to blame the Vietnam War, you know, on him and, and exit swiftly. So I think Johnson initially wanted now was looking for someone ideologically who was a fit. And sort of moderate Democrats were a good fit back then, it was kind of liberal Republicans. Uh, they had similar stances on uh, social issues. And so I think Johnson looked for New York Governor Nelson Rockefeller to run. Re I think really worked hard on him, spent two or three meetings with him. And by the spring, uh, Rockefeller was becoming too a little too critical for Johnson's take about Johnson's Vietnam policy. Johnson was kind of a hardliner on the war, trying to maintain a hawkish position. The left wing of his own party was actively criticizing him. They wanted out of Vietnam in 68. Uh, then Rockefeller couldn't commit. And then you have these dramatic you know, assassinations in 68 on top of everything else. So you had the assassination in April of civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. And then in June, you have the assassination of Robert F. Kennedy, the, the father of the current Kennedy who's, who's currently running for president. And so that, you know, the first one kind of shook the nation. And then the second one, Kennedy's death, really shook the political class, the bearings of the political class across the political spectrum in this country. And so with Kennedy's death, it really removed any real challenge to Hubert Humphrey getting the Democratic nomination. And I think Johnson ultimately came to conclude that Humphrey would not be a very good successor to Johnson. He was pledging to get out of the war uh, within a few months that Johnson had spent five years getting into. Uh, and Johnson feared he would be the first president to be blamed for losing a war in American history. So he didn't like that aspect of Humphrey. And then also Nixon by May was saying surprisingly liberal things, you know, about social policy for a Republican. I mean, he would shade it kind of in a Republican direction. So instead of like the war on poverty, you know, he would talk about something like, you know, black capitalism or investment in urban areas or, you know, assistance for black home ownership or things like that. So I think Johnson came to conclude that even on, on, on the great society, so Johnson's grouping of social welfare policies, that Nixon would no more end Johnson's great society than Eisenhower had ended FDR's New Deal a generation before. And so I think Johnson over time came to believe that Nixon would be a better successor for his own personal legacy. And that's really a brand new finding. You won't find that in any other book. On election day, November 5th, 1968, Richard Nixon receives the good news. He's won confidently in terms of electoral college votes, 301 to 191, but only by a small margin in the popular vote, 
43.42% to 42.72%. In his press conference later in the day, he sends his regards to Hubert Humphrey, saying, quote, As you will probably have heard, I have received a very gracious message from the Vice President congratulating me for winning the election. I congratulated him for his gallant and courageous fight against great odds. I also told him that I know exactly how he felt. I know how it feels to lose a close one. End of quote. We'll soon have Dr. Luke Nichter back to describe Nixon's first presidential term that follows, but first, let's find out what the other participants in the 1968 election will go on to do. Unfazed by defeat, in 1970, George Wallace again seeks the Democratic ticket for Governor of Alabama in what President Jimmy Carter will later describe as one of the most racist campaigns in modern Southern political history. Wallace's opponent, the current governor, Albert Brewer, is the first Alabama governor to successfully appeal to the black vote and try to argue for their rights. Wallace pounces on this, running attack ads that show a Caucasian girl encircled by half a dozen black boys. The slogan attached is equally inflammatory. Wake up, Alabama. Blacks vow to take over Alabama. George Wallace narrowly wins the Democratic nomination via a runoff and proceeds to sweep the election itself. He then promptly flies to Wisconsin to push for the Democratic spot in the 1972 presidential election. Literally only days after winning his governor's seat on a pro-segregation platform, Wallace states that he no longer supports segregation and has always been a moderate on racial matters. His integrity notwithstanding, things are going well for him. He's polling around 40% in most states and has a genuine shot at finally getting a real crack at the presidency on his third try, until disaster strikes. A few months later, while campaigning in Maryland, Wallace is shot by gunman Arthur Bremer and is permanently paralysed from the waist down. A couple of weeks earlier, Bremer had attempted to assassinate Nixon, but had given up after not being able to find any gaps in his security. After the shooting of Wallace, Bremer is promptly arrested, and he remains in prison until his release in 2007. Hubert Humphrey, meanwhile, settles back into his role as a senator. He tries and fails multiple times over the rest of his career to gain the Democratic presidential ticket, ultimately leaving a legacy as an experienced and consistent member of the Senate. In his mid-60s, Humphrey is diagnosed with bladder cancer. Aware that he's soon to pass, he spends his last week making phone calls and personally inviting people to his funeral, including Richard Nixon, who accepts. Hubert Humphrey passes away at only 66 years old and is remembered as a strong supporter of civil rights.
So now we find ourselves back with Nixon and his first term as president. As well as discussing this, Dr. Luke Nichter concludes this episode by telling us about the overall legacy of the 1968 election. Yeah, so in the Nixon first term, and you know, again, I, I probably wouldn't surprise you that, that I see things now a little differently as a result of this than, than others. You know, for example, uh, when you look at that first term, it's surprisingly liberal for a Republican. I mean, it's making peace with communist nations. Nixon was the ultimate anti-communist all the way through Congress and his political rise. He's making peace with China. He's he's negotiating with North Vietnam to get out of the war. He's ending the war. He's making peace, goes to Moscow and signs the Strategic Arms Limitations Treaty in 1972. I mean, these are things that conservatives don't like. And on the domestic side, he's starting the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency. He's signing the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Endangered Species Act. I mean, all these fairly liberal things, social welfare policy. He really doesn't end any of Johnson's welfare state. And 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 while this is 50 years ago, for me, like I feel like this is brand new because a lot of the records are just being declassified in the National Archives. So what's 50 years old to everybody else is still really new and interesting to me. And one idea I wonder about, I mean, I'm playing around with right now and looking in the archives for confirmation for this, is I wonder how much of that fair, relatively liberal policy of Nixon's in that first term is all because of this non-aggression pact, for lack of a better term, that Nixon has with Johnson. Johnson, who's still very active and paying attention, retired, semi-retired at his ranch in Texas, Johnson dies in January of 73. That means Nixon's president those first four years from January 69 to January 73 with Johnson looking right over his shoulder. And Johnson can be an enormous restraining influence on fellow Democrats on the Hill who would otherwise criticize Nixon. So I think potentially this is a whole new way to view the Nixon presidency even, not just the 68 election, that that really, you know, you, you look at the Johnson moderates and the Nixon moderates are really the center, you know, of American politics, the kind of conservative Democrats, the, the moderate Republicans form, form together kind of two halves of this, this sphere, the middle of the, that Nixon called the silent majority in politics. And so I think it's really not until a few days after Johnson's death in, Jan in early 73 that con congressional Democrats begin to investigate Nixon for Watergate and aggressively go after him. And I think potentially in the future, we're going to see how, of course, you know, the Nixon-Johnson relationship explains it all. But that's still kind of new and cutting edge. So I think this kind of gives your listeners an idea of history is not really ever over. We're constantly you know, going into archives, we're finding new material, we're talking to people from the time who've never really spoken because they didn't feel it was appropriate. And so for me, history is really kind of a full contact sport. You know, when I research a subject, I talk to every person I can find. I lay hands on every paper piece of paper I can find in archives. I travel anywhere in the world I have to, to visit historic sites or to research something. And so, you know, it's kind of a lesson about history itself that it's never really over. I think 68 is probably the, the time that most resonates with our current period. You know, the, I, th I think all presidents are president during some kind of a crisis. They have an economic crisis. They have a political crisis. There might be international crises or unpopular wars. I think in the 60s, so Johnson to Nixon had all of those types of crises. That's what made it so really, ex really exciting from a historical standpoint. Looking more recently now, I would say Trump to Biden also had all those types of crises and one, and even one more 
that the 60s didn't have, of course, a public health crisis. And so I think that's why this late 60s resonates, the culture wars of the 60s. You know, I don't think history repeats itself exactly, uh, but I think the lessons of the 60s resonate particularly closely with what we see today. Now, in some way, that's, you know, you look at how much the country tore itself apart in the 60s. The 1860s was an actual civil war. The 1960s was sort of a proxy civil war in the United States and many places around the world. But I think ultimately the comparison to 68 is also a story of optimism, you know, that we will find a way out of this. And as much as, the, you know, the media always likes to point out we're more divided than ever before, you know, you know I think I think there, there still is this idea of a silent majority. I still think there are a lot of people who, you know, reach out to their neighbors and can talk about issues and want to get beyond just politics and political points. And so I think ultimately it's a story of hope, too, that we will perhaps get out of this and return to a, a calmer, you know, era. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Jack McGee. A huge thank you to our guest, Dr. Luke Nichter, Professor of History at Chapman University, California. Check out Luke's most recent book, The Year That Broke Politics, Collusion and Chaos in the Presidential Election of 1968, It's published by Yale University Press. Please join us again next time as we reach the conclusion of our many episodes on the space race. We're talking about the moon landing. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's N-Z-P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com. That's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us to share this project with more listeners, so please do share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.